SoftBank Group Corporation is a sprawling, massively influential holding company that started and still has its headquarters in Japan, but which today has influence around the world. SoftBank was started in the 1980s as an electronics store, more specifically, a computer parts store, selling hardware and software in the early years of the personal computer, from within the then central hub of electronic component manufacturing, Tokyo, Japan. SoftBank got into publishing when it began producing magazines about personal computers in the early to mid-1980s, and by the mid-90s, they'd gotten big enough to both go public, becoming a publicly traded company on the Japanese stock market, and to purchase a United States-based publishing company called Ziff Davis Publishing for $2.1 billion. Ziff Davis was the world's largest publisher of computer magazines at the time, and SoftBank was the largest publisher of computer magazines and, importantly, the largest operator of computer trade shows in Japan at the time. So this purchase made them immensely influential with the personal computer world at a fortuitous time to be influential in that space. But it also made them quite wealthy. All that ad space in those magazines meant they controlled 46% of the $1.7 billion market for computer-related advertising in the United States at the time, alongside the profits from all those trade shows, which became more popular and well-funded every year. In the years following that acquisition, SoftBank acquired, through Ziff Davis, other publishing-adjacent properties, like BlackFriday.com, Mashable, Geek.com, Humble Bundle, Speedtest.net, the IGN network, which includes AskMen.com and TechBargains.com, a fairly large number of well-trafficked sites, all of which, again, add their overall advertising placement opportunities and media-related supplementary income streams to that larger network, which in turn adds to the size of SoftBank's bank account. Ziff Davis, though an all-around successful purchase by most metrics, was only the beginning of SoftBank's canny investments, and not anywhere near the most successful. In 1999, they invested in and partnered with then-high-flying tech company Yahoo, which resulted in partial ownership of the central Yahoo company, and led to the creation of Yahoo Japan, the latter of which went on to become the dominant internet landing site in the country. That same year, SoftBank was converted into a holding company, foreshadowing its intentions to move beyond computer industry publishing to become something a little more broad-based and flexible. The year after becoming a holding company, SoftBank made one of its most financially successful bets. It invested in the then-new and relatively untested Chinese internet company Alibaba. Alibaba, like SoftBank, is a multinational holding company made up of gobs of smaller companies, but it started out as a student-founded business-to-business online marketplace before expanding into an array of e-commerce platform offerings. Within a few years, Alibaba launched the Taobao marketplace, Alipay, Alimama, and Lynx, among others. A decade later, after getting into and succeeding in financial technologies, cloud services, entertainment and internet services, and pharmaceutical sales, among many other fields, Alibaba went public 
in the United States with the largest IPO in U.S. history, bigger than Google, Facebook, and Twitter's IPOs combined. Alibaba was able to make that leap from a small B2B marketplace to the seventh largest company in the world by market capitalization, as of mid-2019 at least, because of that investment of $20 million by SoftBank in 1999. Fifteen years later, when Alibaba went public, that $20 million had become $60 billion. Even before that remarkable profit was realized, though, SoftBank was already making other investments, buying a professional Japanese baseball team, then buying Vodafone Japan, one of the largest players in the Japanese mobile phone market, along with a subsequent purchase of 70% of Sprint Nextel, a major American mobile and internet services company, and it later upped its ownership of that company to 80%. This purchase also allowed SoftBank, through Sprint, to buy a third of the music streaming service title. As of the day I'm recording this, in late August 2019, there is a will-they-won't-they drama going down around the proposed merger of Sprint and another major U.S. telecommunications company, T-Mobile. We will see if the deal makes it past antitrust regulators. A lot of state representatives seem to want to block it as an anti-competition move right now. But if the deal goes through, SoftBank will likely own an even larger slice of the American telecommunications market than it already does. SoftBank has also invested in or bought gaming companies, taxicab companies, and well-trafficked coupon websites. It owns a controlling stake in a French robotics company, a drama-focused video streaming website, and a British company that makes computer processors and software. One of the more influential components of this larger company is a specific wing of its investment activities, the SoftBank Vision Fund. In 2017, SoftBank announced that they would be investing a pool of $100 billion in technology companies specifically, and they would be investing their own capital, but also that of other interests, like the Saudi Arabian and Abu Dhabian governments. SoftBank's founder, Masayoshi-san, has shown himself to be such a shrewd investor over the years that foreign governments, big corporations like Apple and Sharp and Foxconn, and private investors want him to invest their money in potential high-performing companies, like he had with Alibaba and other companies since the 1980s. That's what this $100 billion vision fund is meant to do, and it has already pushed other companies in the same way that the relatively small $20 million investment that he made pushed Alibaba back in the day. Though the sums of money being leveraged today are typically far larger, $100 million minimum, but at times up into the billions of dollars rather than the mere tens of millions. And the potential payoffs are higher, too. This money is usually invested in companies that are upending or defining entire industries, charting a course toward either big payouts or big losses, the outcome realized many years in the future either way. You've almost certainly heard of at least a few of the companies that have received money from this fund, or from SoftBank, or from Masayoshi-san himself personally. Companies like Uber, like Didi Chushing, Flipkart, Arm, NVIDIA, Brandless, Fanatics, Grab, Open Door, Boston Dynamics, Slack. Sun is one of the wealthiest people in the world, and he's the wealthiest person overall in Japan due to these investments, 
and his ability to pick them for himself, for SoftBank, and for those who invest in his funds. The existing Vision Fund and the newly announced Vision Fund 2, which is supposed to launch sometime in late 2019. But, and this is a major but, Masayoshi Son is also renowned as the man who has lost more money than any other person in history. A distinction he earned when he lost about $70 billion during the dot-com crash of 2000, when his high-flying, risky investments in companies like Yahoo, GeoCities, Webvan, E-Trade, and other flashy dot-com bubble-era companies evaporated. By 2003, Sun had lost 98% of his total wealth, and though he's since built it back up to a reported $23 billion or so, there's a chance that his success over the years has had more to do with access to money at the right time and the right place, on the upswing of industry and stock market bubbles, rather than a true knack for picking winners. In other words, there is a chance that his current round of successes are a bit like his previous round of successes. Definitely impressive, but also quite prone to the potential popping of future bubbles. What I'd like to talk about today is one of Masayoshi Sons and SoftBank's biggest and most controversial investments to date. Their investment in the company WeWork, and what we're learning about the potential upsides and downsides of that investment as the company prepares to go public. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Fortune, and it's entitled WeWork IPO. This accounting rule change is crushing the company's financials. Now, believe it or not, despite that critical headline, this was one of the most balanced, least slanted pieces I could find about this story. A story that has riled people up in even the most serious of economics, business, and technology-focused publications. Some of the other pieces published on this subject on the same day as this piece bore headlines like, WeWork isn't a tech company, it's a soap opera. And WeWork IPO shows it's the most magical unicorn. And WeWork's IPO, the triumph of hype over fundamentals. And inside the bananas, bonkers, and unbelievable WeWork IPO filing. Before we get into why WeWork's impending IPO is proving to be so controversial, Let's talk for a moment about the company itself and what's unusual about it. WeWork was founded in 2010 when founders Adam Newman and Miguel McKelvey opened up their first location in the Soho district of New York City. A local real estate investor gave the duo their first $15 million in exchange for 33% of the company, and four years later WeWork was on a very rapid growth trajectory, scooping up real estate all around the United States, taking advantage, in some cases, of long, vacant buildings that were still suffering from a lack of suitable renters post-economic crisis. WeWork's basic business model is to lease or buy large swaths of space and then break that space up into smaller portions, renting it out to small companies that want a handful or a few dozen desks, individuals who want a seat and a place to plug in their laptop, and companies that want flexible quantities of office space as they scale up. The beauty of the model is that it allows WeWork to get this real estate, often at a discount, and then portion it into sizes for which there is a broader market. Post-financial crisis, 
there were fewer massive companies that were willing and able to lease entire floors of a skyscraper in Manhattan, but there were plenty of freelancers and startups and other smaller clientele who were willing to pay a reasonable amount of money for the right to work from that location, especially if the rental agreement was flexible and lasted only months or a few years rather than a decade or more. The icing on this model's cake is that the spaces themselves are designed to feel like a Silicon Valley startup's offices. Think Google, with their white walls, bright murals, snacks scattered throughout, beer and cold brew coffee and kombucha on tap, open floor plans and floor-to-ceiling glass-walled conference rooms. The pitch, then, was that you could rent a desk in such a space on a month-to-month or yearly basis, and the space in which you worked would be comfortable well-designed, and filled with other people also working for themselves, or working for startups and growing companies. It's quite the service. And from the beginning, the WeWork higher-ups have tended to reinvest their revenue, choosing to gobble up more space and make big bets, rather than settling in to reinforce what they've already got. In the years since its founding, WeWork has invested in sub-brands connected to the core concept, including WeWork Labs, which is an incubator for startups. We Live, which applies the WeWork shared office concept to homes, renting out single-room apartments that have shared communal spaces in expensive urban areas. Rise by We, which is a high-end gym concept they added onto their Manhattan WeWork location. And We Grow, which is a private school for kids starting at age three and capped at the fourth grade. WeWork has also made investments in outside brands, including the Flatiron School, which is a Manhattan-based online and in-person coding school, an investment in a women-only co-working space called The Wing, the acquisition of the Stuff to Do site, Meetup, alongside the acquisition of an SEO and data marketing services company called Conductor, a design school in Chicago called Designation, an office management software company called Team, with two E's, and a service provider hiring platform called Managed by Q. The company currently has around 5,000 employees and 527 locations, 103 of which have opened this year, in 2019. They've got around 527,000 customers, which they call members, and they're in the process of rebranding, tucking the shared office spaces, living spaces, high-end gyms, and private schools and coding classes under the centralized umbrella brand, the We Company. The catalyst for this, and many other analysis and think pieces about this business at this moment, is the We Company's intended IPO, their initial public offering, which means, in essence, that the company will be sold as stocks on the open market, but first, shares will be made available to institutional investors like banks and hedge funds and other inner circle buyers, which helps set the price for the open market and allows the company to raise funds through that primary sale. WeWork confidentially filed for an IPO in late April of 2019, and in mid-August, the company released their S-1 paperwork, which is documentation filed by companies planning to go public, which then allows them to register with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. This paperwork contains fundamental information about the business and their finances, and is meant to contain everything an investor might want to know before making an investment or not in said company. The accounting rule change that was mentioned in the headline of this fortune piece is a 2016 Financial Accounting Standards Board adjustment called ASC 842, 
which changed how certain types of liabilities and assets are reported on S-1 documentation. And to make a long, convoluted, incredibly boring story short, this change plugged a hole that previously allowed companies like WeWork, companies that have a lot of lease-related liabilities on the books, things that they are renting with predictable costs and timelines, to conceal some of those liabilities so that their numbers look better than they are. Now, though, because of this change that took place a few years ago, WeWork and similar companies must list those types of liabilities alongside all of the others, and the consequence is a fairly sad-looking balance sheet being presented by WeWork. Now, the drabness of WeWork's prospectus numbers probably wouldn't be a story if the rest of their S1 was relatively normal, was business as usual, but it was very much not normal in terms of culture and language, but also in terms of their raw numbers. And that's led to a situation in which not only are their finances being even more heavily scrutinized than usual due to some blurring and obscuring that they seem to have engaged in. It's also done some serious damage to the company's reputation with potential investors, folks who might have otherwise gleefully handed over their money to this growing company to participate in the IPO or in the post-IPO common stock sale. From this S1 document, we now know that WeWork's liabilities have increased about 600% since 2018, from 2.88 million to 17.91 million as of the publishing of this document. Those are numbers that would have, several years ago, been more concealable than they are now. Beyond that side of the story, though, we also know that the company is losing money at an impressive pace. Revenues more than doubled in the first half of 2019, up to $1.5 billion. But the takeaway money on that revenue is less than zero. They've got a net loss of $903 million in the first six months of 2019, which is a substantially greater loss than the $723 million they were in the hole for the same period in 2018. What's more, the numbers in the S-1 filing indicate that the company, already lacking any future investments and costs, has $47 billion in lease obligations alone, meaning it owes $47 billion in rent on the spaces that it is already leasing, come what may, and that is 10 times as much as it is currently set to make from its tenants based on existing commitments and contracts. There's also concerns about how WeWork is being portrayed as a tech company, a company similar to Facebook or Uber or Airbnb, rather than as a real estate company throughout this document and in their public relations materials. The logic here in framing the company in this way is that real estate companies do not garner the same scale of valuation as tech companies. There's a metric called Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization, or EBITDA, E-B-I-T-D-A, that's often used to gauge the overall financial performance of a company, stripping out the cost of some types of investment, like money paid for property, equipment, and other types of fundamental assets, so investors can more quickly see the profitability or potential profitability of a company without getting into the weeds with their accounting practices or in some cases without getting distracted by periods of higher-than-average investment that might unfairly tarnish otherwise impressive financial results and potentialities. And this adjustment especially makes sense when it comes to asset-light tech companies, like Airbnb, for instance, 
which has impressive digital assets but which does not own actual rental properties. So metrics that are used to measure hotel companies would not make much sense if applied to them. It's a different type of company. Now those sorts of investments, the pursuit of growth and of flywheel-style profits in the future, are often ignored when it comes to tech companies because it is understood post-Amazon, post-Facebook, that many of the highest-yield technology entities require a great deal of growth and investment before they achieve even the most minute profits. But at a certain point, then they just dominate. And thus, it's more vital to look at other metrics than you would look at if you were assessing the success of a bakery or a gym or a real estate company. The issue here is that WeWork refers to itself as a tech company and finds it very convenient to be seen as a tech company. But it is not, by all indications, a tech company. It is a real estate company that has a few very easily replicable tech assets, but which owns tons of property and furniture and other real-world trappings of a typical real estate company. And thus, according to this perspective, the EBITDA adjusted valuation, which is the reason it has a presumed valuation of around $47 billion, despite never having made a profit, is not warranted. For comparison, IWG, a shared office space company that has, until just recently, owned substantially more space than WeWork, and which has actually been a profitable business, doing the same type of business as WeWork, is only valued at about 8% of WeWork's current valuation. And the only concrete difference between the two companies is that WeWork is promoted as a tech company, which implies that it warrants that extreme multiplier. And IWG is presented as a real estate company, an industry in which investors still look at business fundamentals when determining valuation. And thus, it is trickier to massively inflate the implied price, the implied value of a company, by simply imagining what they might do someday. Maybe the most alarming aspect of the newly filed paperwork, though, is what it has to say about the co-founder and CEO of the company, Adam Newman. Newman already had a bit of a reputation going into this new stage for the company. He sounds a bit like a cult leader or a guru at times when he speaks about WeWork, which is something that many people find to be refreshing, but others find to be creepy and more than a little self-serving. To hear Newman tell it, he is the most important part of the company. He is WeWork, and WeWork is him. And frankly, the structure of the company kind of reflects that assumption. WeWork is set up in a remarkably complex way with special types of shares held by Newman that give him essentially complete control over the direction of the company. Newman's wife, Rebecca, is the chief brand officer and chief impact officer of the company, but she is also listed as the person who will run the selection process for a new CEO if her husband is ever permanently disabled or deceased. That is incredibly unusual and something that makes a whole lot of potential investors a little wary. Beyond that and other familial complications, and there are several that are found in this company's structure, Adam Newman has received personal loans from the company. A $7 million loan in mid-2016 and a $362 million loan in April of 2019, both loans with incredibly low interest rates. Newman also has personal lines of credit with the banks that are conducting WeWork's IPO, and that credit is secured by shares of the company's stock that he owns. He also owns portions of at least four properties that the company rents from him. 
He owns a stake in these buildings, and he decides what the company does, and he decided that the company would rent from him, leading to a personal $20.9 million payday. On top of that, Adam owned the trademark for the Wii Company, and when the company decided to rebrand, again, him being the one with control over the company's actions due to his majority of the voting rights, WeWork bought the trademark from him for $5.9 million. There is a sense that one gets the more one learns about WeWork and how it all fits together, and about the people who run it, that this is a company that is being milked for the CEO's and perhaps other C-suite operators' personal enrichment. That enrichment is dependent in some ways on the company doing well. He can only get such large loans, after all, because he has stock in the company that is ostensibly worth something. Quite a lot of something, actually. Remember, the most recent round of funding from SoftBank valued the company at $47 billion. But notably, that round, which infused the company with $2 billion, was initially expected to be 10 times that. $20 billion, half to fund growth and half to buy out employees and other investors, which would have given SoftBank controlling interest in the company. SoftBank did not do this instead opting for a smaller injection of $2 billion, which added to their previous investments represents a total investment over the years of about $10.4 billion, which is not nothing, but it was expected to be, in total, closer to $30 billion. But SoftBank stepped back from that expectation for some reason. Some analysts say that this lower-than-expected round is a bad sign for the company, that Masayoshi son of SoftBank is hedging his bets, not committing too much because things are not looking as great as they should for a company that is so big and so dominant within this industry. Some analysts have also looked at Newman's recent decision to cash out a large number of his WeWork shares before the upcoming IPO and wondered if the CEO of the company might be hedging his bets as well. From a Wall Street Journal piece on the matter, quote, WeWork Company's co-founder, Adam Newman, has cashed out more than $700 million from the company ahead of its initial public offering through a mix of stock sales and debt, people familiar with the matter said, an unusually large sum given that startup founders typically wait for the IPO to monetize their holdings. Mr. Newman, who is chief executive of the shared office space giant and remains its single largest shareholder, over several years has sold some of his stake in the company and borrowed against some of his holdings, the people said. The exact size of Mr. Newman's current ownership of WeWork couldn't be learned. He recently set up a family office to invest the proceeds and has begun to hire financial professionals to run it, they said, end quote. It's important to note here, I think, that none of what we're talking about here is illegal. I have not seen anyone making the claim that Adam Newman or anyone else in the company is doing anything against the law. What I am seeing, though, is an uptick in the volume of people looking at not just individual events, not just one-off actions by the folks running WeWork, but instead the entire pattern of behavior, and asking if maybe, just maybe there is something fishy here. Whether it's the type of fishy that points at some kind of scam or the type of fishy that means the people involved are just being extra careful behind the scenes while up on stage claiming that everything is just fine and there's nothing to worry about, that's impossible to say. It does seem, though, that Adam Newman in particular has shown a remarkable ability to personally profit from a business 
that, despite its immense growth, has failed to ever make a profit, and which may never make a profit. We really don't know enough about how likely that is and within what time frame. So what's especially confounding about this whole situation is that while he's giving interviews about how he wants to give the world superpowers and talking about his business's brand in spiritualistic terms, he's also behind the scenes performing clever feats of tax, loan, and share structure manipulation, none of which are illegal acts, but all of which are questionable in this context from the leader of a company with these sorts of numbers and this type of brand. Now, the bull case for this company, the you should invest in this company when stocks hit the market argument, was laid out by Ben Thompson at Stratechery recently. He says, essentially, that like we have seen with Amazon Web Services, the scale until you're the only one left breathing approach seems to be working pretty well for WeWork thus far. After all, why would anyone invest in a smaller, less known competitor when they know they'll be facing off against the immense bulk, bank account, and brand of WeWork. The other big benefit of an AWS-style approach is that you convert a fixed cost into a scalable cost, and for a huge number of people. Amazon Web Services allows companies to start from essentially zero, all the way up to a huge price tag, as their businesses justify the expense. That's the power of the cloud when it comes to online storage and processing. The pitch here is that WeWork kind of does the same for real estate. Their innovation is figuring out how to make that scalability and thus lower upfront costs, but huge expansion potential, essentially unlimited expansion potential, accessible and palatable, and something that is considered to be an upgrade over normal offices in some ways because of their style and their benefits. On top of that, Newman's manipulations and clever business structure which is often quite self-serving, could also serve the business in some circumstances. WeWork has different holding companies set up for each of their real estate assets. So if they ever need to default on a lease, if they ever run short on money and cannot pay the rent on one of their buildings for whatever reason, that single holding company will collapse. But the landlord likely won't be able to come after WeWork as an umbrella company, which insulates the core of the brand from many potential legal issues they might otherwise encounter. Again, this is something that seems pretty sleazy from some perspectives, but it's also a clever move, and one that, in pure dollars and cents terms, could help the company weather even a very serious economic downturn. The bear case, though, the do-not-invest-in-this-stock argument, is that this is a shady-as-hell company run by shady-as-hell people who are clearly taking what they can grab before it all falls apart, leaving the other investors, but also all of the real estate and service providers that they're currently working with, on the hook for their financial and professional malfeasance. They are a real estate company pretending to be a tech company so they can get a higher valuation than real estate companies can justify, and they aren't really doing anything unique. Anyone with some money could step in and do exactly what they're doing, and the only real difference would be the logo on the building. There's no defensible intellectual property here, other than the overhyped cult-like worship of the domineering founders. Perhaps most vitally, this is a company that is fueled by larger and larger investments, not by revenue. And thus, if those investments ever dry up, the company disappears overnight. We see similar vulnerabilities in ride-sharing companies, none of which are profitable, 
and it's especially evident with Uber, which has taken this same exact approach in their attempt to own the world of transportation. Grow fast and choke your opponents, and don't worry about ever becoming a sustainable company, making more than you spend, because there will always be more investors willing to give you a fresh infusion of a few billion dollars. This is a state of affairs that has become so common in the tech world that I don't think it's immediately evident how bizarre it is in historical context. Companies that lose money in ever greater amounts are being rewarded with greater and greater valuations, estimations of value by the people doing the investing. These sorts of companies are in particularly bad positions if and when the global economy slumps and we lurch into some kind of recession. There's a good chance that investments then will slow or even dry up completely, leaving these money-losing companies to struggle to cut costs before they burn through their remaining stockpile of cash. Whatever the future might hold for this company specifically, I think this state of affairs in which companies aim to get big and go public, getting wealthy without ever needing to make a profit, is interesting. There are a lot of smart people throwing a lot of good money at these sorts of companies, so I know the bull case for them is not nonsensical. They are seeing value there, and are just a little more comfortable upending traditional understandings of what makes a good company in order to build something immense and influential, even if that potential immensity and influence is not clear to everyone from the money-gobbling beginnings of these companies. But it's important to remember that Masayoshi-san, has gambled big and lost big before. You could argue that he was caught flat-footed by a bubble that no one could have anticipated, but you could also argue that he is hooked on rapid growth and seemingly blind to indications that that type of growth might be reaching dangerous, poppable levels. Historically, and we don't have a lot of data points to go on here, but historically, he has shown that he is very, very good at generating large amounts of money and then losing the same amount of money when everything goes sideways. Now, it remains to be seen if we are making our way to another economic collapse or coming up with ways to create higher and higher valuations with no bubble in sight by somehow sidestepping traditional metrics of success, or if we finally have managed to change things, to adjust that economic cycle in some meaningful way by producing new types of companies that are legitimately above or maybe just outside of the influences of that more traditional rhythm. Either way, companies like WeWork provide us with a refined, somewhat extreme version of the larger startup culture that we can then watch and assess and potentially worry over, even as we, along the way, enjoy the fruits of their business models and brands. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Empty Planet by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. This is a book about population, but not about population growth. It's about population decline. The concept here being that many modern interpretations of population growth charts go against the traditional Malthusian model that said that we will continue to grow and grow and grow until we overpopulate the planet, getting up to tens of billions or hundreds of billions of people. And instead, by the end of the next century, by 2100, we will probably have already topped out at around 9 to 11 billion, depending on which numbers you look at, because of a lot of trends that are happening today. 
trends that are reflected in countries around the world where birth rates are declining and governments who have to manage those populations and figure out how to structure society based on the expected population trajectories are facing the facts that they're going to have to recalibrate things. They're going to have to come up with new ways of doing things, including potentially making some very difficult choices about things like technology and healthcare and immigration and so on. Now, this is a book with a very distinct point of view. The thesis statement is fairly convincing, but it's also not the only thesis statement in this field of research. But that said, it is a very well-written book with some very interesting stats and some interesting ways of looking at the world and at populations of humans in general. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Empty Planet by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and so on. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.